well, good afternoon, uh, everyone. And it's I'm really pleased to be here uh, to share in this uh, to share with you in this invited series. And um, you know, really interesting video there from Steve. And um, it might just be a coincidence, but I happen to have been born and and I grew up in the nation of Guyana that Steve. I uh, was speaking about there. And um, so I know firsthand of some of the things that he shared. But I really have fond memories of growing up in Guyana. Um, it, was a, it was a really lo- lovely time, lovely, warm country. And, um, but to the casual observer or visitor to Guyana, the issues that Steve raised would not be apparent. Um, I came across a blog from a writer called John Stanlake who was sharing his experience of living in Guyana. And I'll just read you a paragraph. He says, one aspect of this country that has intrigued me most during my time here has been the incredible diversity. For a nation modest in geographical area, and actually the size of Guyana is the size of of England and Wales put uh, put together, with a total population comparable to the city of Leeds, so less than a million people, Guyana is a melting pot for such a diverse range of cultures, peoples, languages, and traditions. And he went on to say that the diversity was evident in all aspects of Guyanese society, including food, language, music, religion. Uh, So, you know, in terms of food in Guyana... I mean, Guyana also has indigenous Indians who are the original inhabitants of the land, uh, and they have their, their 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 dishes that we all eat, and Chinese, and we all eat and cook. Everybody, you know, it's that kind of a, a culture, really, really diverse. But the Afro-Guyanese are mainly descendants from slaves who were taken from Africa to Guyana to work on plantations. And after slavery was abolished, um, the Indo-Guyanese were taken from East India to work on the plantations uh, because the slaves had left. And uh, through the years, there have always been that kind of enmity uh, in terms of, of the relationship. But the national motto for Guyana is one people, one nation, one destiny. And I think whoever came up with our motto kind of looked at the diversity, looked at the issues and problems that we were facing. And I think that motto is an aspiration that articulates the need that in a diverse setting, the need for oneness, for unity, if actually as a nation, the country is going to progress. And so growing up, for the most part, you know, everybody kind of got on until maybe some event or, or some incident, or as Steve says, if, it's, if there was an election and there was politics and suddenly the kind of divisions became clear and, and your identity was kind of based on, on, on your race um, and, uh, uh, and it then mattered which race you were. And uh, if people know there is... The West Indies team is made up of people in the Caribbean islands and in Guyana and from Guyana, 
And even if a Guyanese was doing well in the West Indies team, it still mattered to some people which race that person was because it, it kind of was that part of the identity. So senior pastor Steve Tippett said in, on the, in the opening message of this series that diversity is really fantastic and it brings lots of benefits to a community. And he shared some of, the, some of his learning from leading a diverse church. But he also shared that it often comes with its challenges. Next in the series, Andrew Wilson shared that God's plan, God's heart, has always been to call a diverse group of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And last week, Hilary and Roberto shared that everyone is welcome at the, ta- at, at the table. And there is acceptance from God, but there is also acceptance of us accepting each other in being part of the body of Christ. Today, we're looking at the elephant at the table, which is similar to looking at a popular phrase, the elephant in the room. You know, you've, you've probably heard that. And the idea here is that if there's an elephant in the room, it would be so big relative to everything else that it would be unmissable. And so, This phrase usually refers to a big issue in which lots of people can see, but no one's talking about it. And no one wants to confront it head on. It's an issue that many people kind of tiptoe around or kind of squeeze past and try to do everything they can to ignore it. In terms of building a diverse church, that issue is trust. But the question might be, well, why face up to this elephant at the table? Isn't it good enough that we can have acceptance? Isn't it good enough that we can come together on a Sunday, worship together, be in groups together? Isn't it great that we can accept each other? Why focus on this issue of trust? Well, last week, one of the scriptures that mentioned was John 17, where Jesus praying to the Father, praying for us. And uh, just quickly reading a couple of verses, um, 17, verse 20 and 21, uh, Jesus prays, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And I don't know about you, but if I, if I consider the Trinity, if I consider there is one God in three persons, if I consider the oneness of the Trinity, then it strikes me that it is more than just acceptance. The oneness as far as the Trinity is concerned, is deeper than that. There's a deeper relationship. And Jesus' prayer is that, Father, as we are one, may they be one. And so therefore, I think we are looking at something deeper than just acceptance. We are looking at deeper relationships, and deep relationships are built on trust. 
Secondly, I just want to share a story and to kind of illustrate why we need to look at trust. And let's say there's a community, maybe a village. And, you know, most people living there get on well, they live together. Sometimes you find in these villages, they kind of grew up together, went to school together. Nice community. But then a new family moves into this community. And this family is different. Maybe a different class, maybe a different race. But they're different somehow. And they've got to integrate in this community. And everything seems to be going well. They work in the community. The kids go to the school. They make friends. They're invited to events. They go to barbecues, etc. And everything looks really good. But then one night something happens that kind of shocks the community. Something that's not too nice. And um, nobody knows who's done it. But a rumor starts going wrong that that family was involved. And then, in what seems like a split second, the community turns on that family. And that family, having not done anything wrong, are probably thinking to themselves, but, but I thought I was part of you. I, I, I thought I was part of this community. But now I feel excluded and it seems as if I thought I was accepted but maybe maybe we're not and even if in the end it's revealed that actually that family had nothing to do with that incident sometimes relationships are never quite the same after that and when there is a community in which there is probably acceptance but no trust Things like that can easily happen. Because if you don't trust someone, sometimes it's easy to believe the worst when you hear a rumor or something like that. It's easy to believe the worst. And so for this family, they were kind of accepted in the community but not trusted. It was easy for other people to think, yeah, maybe they did. Maybe it was them. And sometimes... In such circumstances, maybe things that might be maybe small issues can blow up and become big issues. And maybe simple mistakes can be seen as deliberate acts of provocation because you don't really know people and you don't really trust people. Now, there are many reasons that can cause people not to trust each other. And sometimes it's because of a history of rivalry or hurt you know, like I guess is the case of, of Guyana. It might be the personal hurt or hurt felt by a whole group of people. It might be due to different nationalities or tribes or races where there continues to be conflict or injustices which may have resulted from an abuse of power. Mistrust can be created between men and women in communities, single and married people. Uh, rich and poor, old and young, able, disabled. And sometimes we fear people or cultures because we can't understand them. And that makes it difficult for us to trust those people. And sometimes to deal with that, what we do is it's easy to kind of put p- people in a box and, and kind of label them because we don't understand them. 
and that label says, you know, this is how you are, this is, you know, this is who you are, this is what you do, this is how you react, and, and those labels may just be from what people might say or think or see on TV or whatever. But if you do that, then it means that you don't have to take time to really get to know who that person really is because you've kind of just kind of labeled them and you, you kind of know what they're all about. Today, we're going to look at this issue of trust. And as we've done in this I Invited series, we're going to look at it through the book of Acts. So we're going to read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. And if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to it. Otherwise, it's going to come up on the screen. So let's read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and that's a way of saying to Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the song but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he said. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is a chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. 
he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now naturally, and and normally, when we look at this story, we rightly focus on the dramatic manner of Saul's conversion. And how an encounter with Jesus radically transformed his life. And if you're here today and, and maybe you're not sure you have a relationship with Jesus, I would like to say to you that your life can be transformed today by having an encounter with Jesus. Today, you can meet, you can meet God through Jesus and have your life transformed as greatly as Saul's life was transformed. It may not be as dramatic as Saul's conversion, but it will be no less real and no less real to you. Now, God uh, asked Ananias to do something difficult. In looking at the story, we're going to look at it uh, and draw three main points from it. And the first is that God asks. Um, God is asking us to do things that he requires us to do. Today we're going to be looking at this story not from, Saul, not from Saul's point of view, but from Ananias' point of view. Because he was asked to cross the divide and to go and have fellowship with someone that actually he wanted nothing to do with. We don't know much about Ananias. He's one of those little-known characters in the Bible that pop up in a timely fashion every now and then to enable God's plans to be fulfilled. We know that he was a disciple of Jesus, and we know that he lived in Damascus. And maybe he was one of those Jews who fled Jerusalem as a result of Paul's, well, Saul's persecution. But later in the book of Acts, in chapter 22, Paul describes Ananias as a devout observer of the law, and respected by all the Jews. But as far as we know, he wasn't someone significant in the church. He wasn't like a leader or anything like that. Just a normal member of the church in Damascus. Ananias was a disciple of Jesus. And I think he was just trying to keep his head down, out of the line of fire. And as everyone heard that Saul was coming, he was kind of hoping that he would never set eyes on Saul and Saul would never set eyes on him. So, as we look at this story, we can see that there's a huge gulf between Ananias and Paul. A gulf that probably was made up of fear and prejudice. Saul's reputation had gone before him because he had this reputation for hunting down Christians and doing them harm. And he was arresting them and putting them to death. So, the first thing we'll look at from this passage is that that God asks. If you think about it, the word's gone around, Saul is coming to Damascus, 
And all the Christians probably went on the ground when they heard that Saul's on his way. And from this story, we'll see that Ananias appeared to be the lucky one who got the assignment to risk arrest and worse by coming into contact with Saul. God asked Ananias to do something that was really difficult for him. And in this, our invited series, God is asking us to do some things that some of us may find very difficult for a number of reasons. Now, when Ananias hears what God is asking him to do, I think he kind of takes a step back. To Ananias, this probably didn't make any sense. After all, Saul hated Christians. And now God wants him to go to Saul all alone. And God wants him to put his hand on this this murderer. So Ananias was certainly afraid of what might happen to him when he met Saul. I think another part of him might have just been prejudiced as well against Saul. Because after you hear what he's doing to your brothers and sisters, well then, why would you want to help him? So what does Ananias do? Well, he reminds God of all the evil things he's heard about Saul. And he tries to reason with God to find a way to kind of wriggle out of, of this assignment. He simply doesn't want to do it. It's as if he thought God didn't already know all the things Saul had been doing. It's as if Ananias was saying, but but God, you don't understand. And in the same way for us, we might say, but God, you don't understand the hurt. You, You don't understand the pain. Have you forgotten what maybe these people have done to to my people and to me. God, you don't understand what this will cost for me to do. But the thing is, he does understand. God does understand. He understood where Ananias was coming from and he understands where we are coming from. He knows our history. He knows what we've gone through. But Ananias had to trust God and obey him. And that's what we have to do also. Ananias obeys. But I don't think he did it grudgingly in the end. And as Ananias obeyed God, there seems to have been a change in his heart. I think God transformed his heart on the way. Because by the time he reaches Saul, and as we read in the the passage... He changed from a guy who's complaining that he doesn't want to go. And he lays hands on Saul and he says, Brother Saul. And he prays for him. That shows a change. A change in heart, a change in attitude. And God is asking us to cross that divide of things that keep us apart. To build a diverse church that has genuine acceptance and genuine trust among us as his people. The second thing is God goes before us. 
So in an effort to encourage Ananias, God tells him that Saul is praying and that Saul is expecting him. God is saying to Ananias, I've already gone before you on this one. I've prepared a way. And when God asks us to do things, he usually goes before us. And what that doesn't mean is that everything will turn out the way we would like them to. But what it means is that everything will turn out the way that he wants it to. He's in control. But many times, like Ananias, we worry and we fret. And we do so in vain because many times we'll find that he's gone before us. And he's already working in that person's heart. And he provides us. And he's provided us with everything we need to do what he asks. Interestingly, Ananias is a Jewish name that means Jehovah is gracious. So can you picture it from Saul's perspective? Here is someone who's going around murdering Christians. Doesn't be, didn't believe in Jesus. Has an encounter with Jesus He's now blind, he can't see, he's helpless, waiting for someone to come to pray for him. And God says to him, the person who's coming to pray for you, that person's name declares that I am gracious. That's what Ananias meant. And that must have been something for somebody like Saul who'd kind of been fighting against, against God all that time. But let's remember, God both goes before us, not only, in a, as we've seen in Ananias' case, but Jesus went to the cross. Jesus crossed the divide to die for us. The Bible says even when we were sinners, even when we were enemies of God, even when there was this partition that separated us, Jesus crossed the divide and died for us. He is our example. Thirdly, it's about taking risks to build. 1 Peter 2, 5 says that like living stones, we are being built into a spiritual house. God is the builder He has a plan for where each brick will fill into his spiritual house. And that means that God puts us in communities and in the context of diversity, trust is one of those ingredients that makes the cement that holds us together. We need to take the risk to share our lives with with people who we might not naturally connect with. And being open in these cases can sometimes seem risky. From an Ananias' point of view, he was being asked to risk life and liberty. For us, in 2017 here in London, we're not being asked to risk life life and limb. But the cost might be the pain of being rejected, of, of being maybe misunderstood. Like Ananias, we need to trust God that he can cover us, that he can protect us, even as we take a risk to cross the divide and engage with people we wouldn't normally want to engage with. 
building something significant always involves some element in risk. Because what it requires of us to do is to somehow push past our fears and oftentimes take steps along paths that we've never known before. For Ananias, taking that risk meant being involved in the start of the ministry of a man who, who God used to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, that's to us, and to start to create the diversity that exists in the worldwide church today. So who knows what God might do through you as you take a step of obedience today? Now, the next slide that comes up will show a picture, God's manifold wisdom. And someone uh, I heard years ago used a picture like this to uh, to explain uh, a verse in Ephesians 3.10, which I'll quickly read as his intent, that's God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now the word manifold there could be translated into can be translated to mean many colored or variety or diverseness. And so God's manifold, God's multicolored, multifaceted wisdom uh, uh, will be a testimony to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. And it's that he can create a people from every nation, every tribe. And I, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture that to me says that, that, that Jesus, maybe that Jesus, that white light hit that prism and creates a beautiful rainbow, uh, uh, you know, of disciples multicolored, multi, multifaceted. And this only God can do. And when, when, when the heavenly hosts look on, they will say, wow, only God can do that. You see, God could have healed Saul without Ananias' help. Do you think so? I think he could. But God God has decided that we, his people, are going to be the paint that he uses to paint on the canvas of life to paint a wonderful picture of what he can do in communities. And that picture displays his glory. So that's what we're aiming for. We aim it to be a people, a multicolored, multidimensional, multicultured uh, people that displays his glory, that displays God's wisdom. But every journey begins with a first step. And so Kings is about being a diverse, a diverse community made up of relationships built on acceptance and trust. But you know, it takes time to build trust. But it all always begins with a first step. 
for Ananias, the first step was saying yes to God, walking up to that door and knocking on that door. That was a first step. Building trust takes time. And because generally we're busy people, we need to be intentional about it. And we need to be intentional about how we respond. I think it's about sharing lives with people that maybe we wouldn't normally share with. It's about developing openness and honesty as God maybe puts people in our hearts and joins us together with people that we wouldn't naturally interact with. Of course, we can be accepting of many people, but practically we can only share life with a few. And as we share life with each other, those invisible lines and barriers that tend to keep us and and divide communities, we will be able to build, we'll be able to develop understanding and build trust with each other. Now, we need to be aware that not all steps have have a happy landing. And there will be times when we step out of our comfort zones, but this response is not what we like or maybe what we would expect. You see, when God calls us to do something that's difficult, he doesn't always let us know how it's going to turn out up front. However, down the road, sometimes we may look back and see that he's used us significantly in influencing others for him. It's about crossing invisible lines, pulling down invisible walls that help us to develop deeper fellowships with each other. So, as we come to the end of this message, my question is, what is your next step? Maybe it's asking God for courage to obey him in this area. Maybe it's asking God to help you deal with past hurts and other things that make it difficult for you to trust. Maybe it's something practical like meeting up with someone for coffee or inviting someone around for a meal. Building trust is is not easy. It really isn't easy. But as we seek to be part of this diverse church that reflects this glory of God, this multicolored wisdom of God, let's seek to build trust on acceptance so that God gets the glory. Amen.